Well, let's begin this morning in Galatians chapter 4, and we'll read verses 4 through 7. Galatians chapter 4, beginning at verse 4, we'll continue our series of lessons on the essential doctrines of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the doctrine that we're going to consider this morning is the fatherhood of God and the sonship of believers. And so we'll begin in Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4, where we read these words. But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Word Abba there is just an endearment, as we would say, Papa or, or Daddy. Abba, Father. And in verse 7, therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. This doctrine of the fatherhood of God is one of the most unique doctrines of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's one of the most precious to understand that the creator of heaven and earth is our father. And all that that means, and that we have been made sons placed as sons. That's what the the thought of adoption as sons is that we've been placed as a son of God with all the privileges of a son. When we think about that, that, that is one of the most precious truths that we have because we know that we have been born again. Now, in the context of the letter to the Galatians, the Apostle Paul was correcting the error of some Gentile believers that were being deceived by some Jewish believers that for a Gentile to really be saved, they had to keep the law of Moses, and they had to be circumcised, and they had to keep all the dietary laws. If you're really going to be saved and know you're saved, you have to keep the law of Moses, the Ten Commandments, and all of the other uh, laws that were given to Moses for the children of Israel. Paul's correcting that error. That's not how you're saved. The legality of the law can only bring death and condemnation and bondage, and that's still true today. We cannot save ourselves by trying to keep the Ten Commandments, and yet there are many religions and denominations that try to make themselves acceptable to God by keeping the Ten Commandments. But God says you'll always fall short because the law wasn't given to forgive your sins or to cause you to live righteously. The law was given to point out you're a sinner, to point out the standard of God that you can never accomplish through your own merit. And so the law only produces death because we are born in sin. The more that you try to keep the law, the more you're going to sin, the more you're going to break those laws. And so the law just causes your sin to increase. It doesn't take it away. The only way for our sins to be forgiven is for us to accept that Jesus paid the debt for our sins. He was born under the law, but he was without sin. The only man that was born without sin, because his father was not Adam like ours. His father is God. And so he is the God man, the man without sin. So he died our death to represent us. But then he also rose again that we might have new life. And so our identification with Jesus Christ is that when he died, we died with him. We were slaves to sin. But if you stop and think about it, what, what's the only 
real way for a slave who can't buy himself out of slavery, he doesn't have anyone else to buy him out of slavery, how can a slave finally be free of the cruelty of his master? By dying. A cruel master can no longer inflict any pain or authority over a corpse. We died with Christ on the cross. The law has no power over us. Sin has no power over us. But when Jesus rose from the dead, we rose with him. We've been born again. We've been given a new life in Christ. And so this is, this is the emphasis that Paul was making when he was writing to the Galatians. You can't be saved through keeping the law. It, that only condemns you to bondage, to sin and to death and condemnation. But faith in Jesus Christ brings about a new birth. John chapter 1, verse 12. Faith in Christ brings a spiritual birth and a new nature. That's something the law can never do. And it was never intended to do because of the weakness of man's sinful flesh. Jesus dying on the cross settled the sin question for us once and for all. God didn't overlook my sin. The price for my sin was paid by Jesus Christ. But now I'm free to live for the glory of God, to do the will of God. And I receive now a nature because I've been born again. Now I have a nature that can obey the righteousness of God, to do what's right in God's sight. And in John 1 and verse 12, it says, But as many as received him, Jesus, to them he gave the right. We have the, the authority. We have the privilege to become children of God to those who believe in his name. It's that simple. Faith in Jesus Christ gives you the authority to say that you're a son of God because God has declared it so. And this personal, intimate relationship with God as our Father is only found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. You won't find this in other religions. Our Father is the creator of heaven and earth. With all the privileges that are associated with fatherhood and as children, we can approach the almighty, the all-powerful, the all-knowing, the all-wise God, we can come right into his throne room and call him Papa, Abba, Father. What a privilege we have. In Galatians that we read there, it used the word adoption, and this confuses some. Are we adopted or are we born? Which is it? And the answer is both. We are born into these are two different analogies that the Bible uses to reinforce this truth that we have the privilege to call God Father. Our birth, being born again, it emphasizes that we have received a new nature. We are partakers of the divine nature of God. God has placed within us the very life of Jesus Christ. That's only true of believers in Jesus. That's what makes us different. We are a new creature. Now we look the same as the rest of the human race, but we are a different race of people. We are a new creature in Christ because we have something that those that are born in Adam don't have. We have the very nature of God, which can only do the will of God, which can only please him. So that's what the birth, the regeneration, that's what that truth emphasizes. Now, adoption it is simply another analogy that's used that is actually illustrated for us in the, the custom of the Greeks and, and the Romans, both of them, had this official ceremony that when 
a child became a certain age, they had an official legal ceremony saying, this is my child. He has the right to my inheritance. He has the right to all of my household. He has all the privileges of my son. And that ceremony was not only done for for those that weren't born into that family, so there was that, that thought of adoption, but often that ceremony was even done for biological sons. In other, in other words, just to make it an official statement, this is my son and he has access to everything that's mine. And so that's what the adoption of sons, the placing of a son means. God has acknowledged us as those who have access to all that he is and all that he has. So we are both born and we are adopted into the family of God. Our death to sin is as real as the death of a slave to a cruel master. But our birth is as real as one who's born into the royal family. They didn't deserve, they didn't do anything to get that privilege, did they? The same is true with us. We didn't deserve this new birth, but by faith in Jesus Christ, the miracle of regeneration takes place, and we're born into this family. God is our Father, and now all of us are brothers and sisters in Christ. We are one. This is our unity, faith in Jesus Christ. John 17, Jesus makes a statement here that would be blasphemy if it wasn't for the fact that Jesus said it. If I just said it, you should probably string me up. But Jesus says in John 17, verses 22 and 23, something that is such a comfort when you believe it, when you lay hold of it. John 17, 22. Jesus is praying to his Father while he's here on earth and, and right before the crucifixion. And he says, And the glory which you gave me I have given them. So the glory that God the Father gave Jesus, the Son of God, Jesus says, Now I've given them that they may be one just as we are, are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. That's the statement that is so incredible that if God had not recorded it for us, I would not have believed it. But God loves me with the same love that he loves Jesus Christ. That's my worth. That's my value. It's not what I can accomplish. It's not how I can impress everyone else. It's the fact that I know that God loves me with an infinite love, an unending love, an immense love. And no matter what happens in this life and no matter how much success I have or how much failure I have, it does not change the fact that God loves me like he loves Jesus. And I know he loves Jesus. I have his very nature. That's why the Bible says he can't deny me. I'm his son. Let's look at just a few things that are related to fatherhood that we find in Scripture that are a reflection or should be a reflection of God as our father. So let's go to Luke 15, verse 10. The first thing that we notice is the joy that a father has when a child is born. Again, these things are reflected in natural fatherhood, but they are simply a picture of the fatherhood of God. There's just something about fathering another living being. It just produces joy, at least in a, in a father that is sound and of right mind. 
It just fills you with, with joy. That, that individual is a part of you like no one else can be. They are a partaker of who you are. They are a reflection of who you are. You have a common heritage. You have a common genetics and characteristics. And there's something about that. You, you can't explain it. You, you've all seen and experienced, many of you, holding a father, holding a baby, and they're, they're just grinning. It, there's just that overwhelming joy. This is my kid. This is my daughter, my, my son. The same is true of your heavenly father. And again, I, I, I can't explain it. who God is. He's infinite. He fills the universe. He created the universe. And you look at all the magnificent creation. We've always here in, in Denver have the privilege of looking at the beautiful mountains and so much beautiful scenery. All of that does not bring him joy like me being his child. When I accepted Jesus as my Savior, it brought him great joy. In Luke 15 there, we'll read that passage, or just that verse, but in the context of the passage, Jesus is giving three parables, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. Now, the, the analogy is different than, than having a, a child, but the thought is it's still an illustration of salvation. And so he says in Luke fifteen ten, Likewise, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Of all of the universe, with all of its majesty, what brings heaven, what brings God joy? One person, one speck of dust in this universe, and that's what, that's what brings him joy. Do you see how when you, when you believe that, my life has meaning. You ever have those moments when, what's the, what's the point of going on? Nobody cares, nobody loves me. We've all had thoughts like that. But that's when these truths will, will give you a foundation that nothing can shake. The creator of heaven and earth rejoices that I'm his. My life has meaning. My life has value. Matthew 7, a good father provides for their child. Our father has committed himself to provide for us. In Matthew 7, you can jot down 7 through 11. Most of you are familiar with this passage, but Jesus is saying, you who are born in sin, most of you as fathers know how to give good gifts to your children. If they ask you for something to eat, you're not going to give them poison. You're not going to give them a poisonous snake. You're not going to give them something that's going to harm them. A good father, even those born in sin, you're going to do what's right. You're going to provide what they need for their health and their strength and their safety. And Jesus said, if you then being evil know how to give good gifts in verse 11 to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? And Paul in Philippians 4.19, again, another familiar passage, but these are promises from our father. Philippians 4.19 says, And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Well, how rich is Jesus? He's the heir of all things, created everything from nothing. I think whatever you need to have God's best in this life and eternity, I think you're going to get it if you look to him in faith. Our Father provides. What a glorious rest in this, this world and this life that has so many questions. And again, I've said this over and over again, but I can't emphasize it enough. Every stage of life has its anxieties. Every stage. Children, I remember going to kindergarten and I cried all day long because my mama wasn't there. I still remember it. 
vividly. Every stage of life has its anxieties. I remember, am I going to finish high school? What am I going to do? What kind of job am I going to have? Whom am I going to marry? All those anxieties. Then I had wife and children. How in the world am I going to support them? Lord called me to the mission field. Now the anxiety just multiplies. Now I'm getting older. Oh boy, the anxieties don't stop, do they? Life keeps changes. Life keeps throwing things at you. And so don't don't wait to find joy and peace until you get to some place where you won't have any problems because you'll never get there. Your joy and peace, no matter where you are in life, is knowing that your Father has promised to provide everything you need to have His best for time and for eternity. Provide for you what you need to do the will of God. He hasn't promised to provide everything you want, everything you think you need, but He will enable you always to do what's right in His sight. And that has eternal value. That's your joy. That's your peace. Not on any other goal that you set for yourself or that other people set for you. My God shall supply all my need. I rest in that when the anxiety overwhelms me. And I have to learn to cast that anxiety on the one who cares for me, my father. Protection. One of the, built, one of the strongest built-in instincts of a parent, whether it be a father or a mother is the instinct to protect the child from harm. Fathers are often looked to as the source of protection. I've given this example so many times, and I've seen it so many times. Uh, a small child went in a, amongst strangers, whether it be a store or some event. When a small child perceives danger or harm from a stranger or someone else, and when I say perceived, it's probably some children, they just don't like strangers. What's the first thing they do? They run to their father who picks them up and now they're safe. That father is quite literally for them a strong tower of protection. To get to them, they have to go through the father. My father can beat up anybody. For anyone to get to me, to do me any real harm, any real eternal harm, they have to get through my father. They have to get through my big brother. They have to get through the Holy Spirit. And so I know if God allows from time to time for me to experience what I consider to be harm and hurtful. My peace comes from knowing if God's allowed it, it's for a purpose not to harm me, but to do me good. John 10, verse 29. John 10 and verse 29. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. The all-powerful God is my strong tower, that when I run to him, in the name of Jesus, I'll find the protection that I need. So when you feel like someone is threatening you, whether it be physically, emotionally, or any other way, run to Jesus. Let him be your protection. And knowing that he will only allow you to experience what is for your good. In Proverbs 4, verses 1 to 4, we have the importance of a father bringing instruction to a child. This is another responsibility of a father to teach your children too many fathers today they ignore their children they let the mother take care of them and if if there is a mother that will take care of them a lot of sad examples in life because of sin but a good father takes time to teach hear my children proverbs 4 1 hear my children the instruction of a fa of a father and give attention to no understanding for i give you good doctrine or teaching do not forsake the law. When I was my father's son, tender 
and the only one in the sight of my mother, he also taught me and said to me, let your heart retain my words and keep my commands and live. A father's instruction and encouragement in the life of a child is essential for their growth, for their stability, for success in life. And in the Jewish culture, it was the responsibility of a father to teach every male child a trade. It was the responsibility of the mother to teach female children to how to run and manage a household. It was their responsibility. It was a school. It was a trade school, the very family, because of the instruction of the parents. A good father doesn't just discipline a child when the child is bad. Again, that happens too often. A good father takes time to teach, to instruct. This is how we do things. This is how we behave in certain situations. Just the basic, even the basic social skills. And we see the, the lack of that today in our society, don't we? Children don't even know how to speak to other people, let alone adults. They don't know how to conduct themselves in events or assemblies. or Why? Because they were never instructed. This is what you do. This is what you don't do. And then if there's ignoring of the instructions, then yeah, there's discipline that follows. But let's start with the instruction. Our Father does that with us. God doesn't just beat us when we do something wrong. That's how a lot of Christians think of God, their Father. No, my Father's given me explicit instruction in His Word. This is how you think. This is how you talk. This is how you do this. This is how this relationship works. Thank God for my Father who instructs me. Look at His Word. Look at the Bible with that kind of understanding. It's not do's and don'ts to make my life miserable. It's to teach me how to be successful in life, how to be successful in doing the will of my Father, because I'm going to enter into all the glory that pertains to my Father and to the Lord Jesus Christ. Psalm 32, verses 8 and 9, my Father instructs me. Psalm 32, 8 and 9, he says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way which you should go. I will guide you with my eye. Do not be like the horse or like the mule, which have no understanding, which must be harnessed with a bit and bridle, else they will not come near you. What a picture we have. How many have had parents that just instruct you with their eyes without saying a word? I've had those kind of parents. And I knew what they meant with that look because they had already instructed me. And when I would start to stray from that instruction, one little look corrected me. And then we all know children that know the look, but ignore it anyway. They're just like a mule. You got to take them by the bit and drag them where they got to be to do what they got to do. Don't be that kind of child. Don't be that kind of Christian. Hide the word of God in your heart. Know what the Bible says. Know the instructions. And then in a situation where you may be tempted to stray from that, just let the Holy Spirit look at you. Bring that conviction. But wait a minute. I know what the instruction is, and I know it's for my good. I'm going to do what's right in my Father's sight because I do want to please Him. I don't want to bring Him. Second Timothy 3.16. Our Father teaches us. He instructs us. Are we listening to the instruction? Are we reading the instruction? Are we following it step by step? We've all probably put together furniture that has instructions. And when they are correct, which they are not always, (laughs) 
But when they are correct, it helps just to do one step at a time. Read it all first together. Kind of good way to study the Bible too. Read the entire chapter. And then go back and do step by step. What's next? We need to do the same thing with the Word of God. Step by step, follow His instruction. And in 2 Timothy 3.16, we have the instruction manual for life. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and instruction in righteousness. Why? That the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Again, that's what the instruction's for, that we might be successful in doing the will of God. Our fathers went to a lot of trouble, a lot of time, dedicated to his children to give us the instructions. May we value his instruction, value the Word of God, the Bible. If we ignore it, Hebrews 12, we won't read this, but jot down, read it later. Hebrews 12, 3 to 11, if we ignore his instruction, he does discipline us. That's what a good father does. Why? Because he hates us? Because he's mad at us? No, because he wants us to understand there are consequences for ignoring his wise instruction. And if he can somehow grab our attention that there's a consequence here, it will save us from greater consequence down the line. I've given this example many times when we lived in Paraguay and Melissa was little. We lived on a street where there was constant sugarcane trucks that just barreled down a dirt road and they just ran down there. We had a fence and everything. Had a nice yard for Melissa to play in. But of course, her and her buddies like to play outside of the fence near the road. And so after four or five times of telling her, you don't go outside the fence, I inflicted a little pain upon her. Why? Why would I do that? A good, a good father, you shouldn't, you shouldn't cause them to have pain. That little pain, quite measured, saved her from greater pain, greater loss. The same is with the loving discipline of our father. Don't despise it. Thank God, I've said this often, I'm glad God doesn't let me get away with stuff. I'm glad he loves me enough to say, Doug, that's not going to go. That's not going to work. You think of King David who had a heart after God's own heart. He sinned with Bathsheba. God could have let it slide. I mean, he's, David's done so many wonderful things. He's, he's, he's been a man of faith and won many victories. And nobody else knows about it. And he's king, and so let's give him a break. God didn't let him get away with it, did he? Because he loved him. Don't despise the discipline of the Lord. Finally, a good father leaves an inheritance for his child. Our father's rich. In Genesis 25, 5, Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac. God wants to do that with you. In Romans 8, verses 16 and 17, we all know this passage. Romans 8, 16 and 17, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. Every child of God, every Christian, even the most carnal of his children, have an inheritance in heaven because they're a child. They have eternal life. They have a home in heaven. That's an inheritance. But the Bible teaches us we can add to our inheritance in heaven by living a life of faith and obedience, a joint heirship with Jesus Christ, who's the heir of all things. What an inheritance awaits us. In this life, Romans 8.32, He who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? So while I'm waiting for that final inheritance, he's going to supply what I need right now. 
It's quite a trust fund I have from my father. First Peter 1, 3 to 5. We have an inheritance that is reserved for us, and we are reserved for it. It's certain. This is why I don't worry about the future, not the near future and not eternity. I'm well set. I'm set for life. I'm set for eternity because I know who my father is. Let's close this morning with 1 John chapter 3 in the first three verses. 1 John 3, 1 to 3. This doctrine of the fatherhood of God's not new to us, but is it dear to us? Does it mean something to you? Does it change how you look at circumstances and relationships, knowing that God is your father? It's not, not just a cold doctrine. It's who God is to you. In 1 John 3, 1, behold. The thought behind that word is just stop and consider. Stop and look around a little bit. Take time to take it in. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called the children of God. Think about it. Therefore, the the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God. It's an established fact. When you accept Jesus as your Savior, you're born again. You're a child of God. He's your father from that moment on. And it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. The world doesn't look at us as some special royal child. (laughs) In fact, quite the opposite. But we know. Do we know it? We know when he, Jesus, is revealed, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is in all of his glory that he's promised to share with us. And everyone who has this hope in him does what? Just keeps on living however they want. Does their own thing. No. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. We want to become more like our father. We want to become more like our big brother because we love the one who first loved us. Well, let's have a song in closing.